Welcome to the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Every other week, we bring you Catholic teachings and stories of faith from people throughout the Diocese of Pensacola, Tallahassee. This is the Gaudium et Spes podcast. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Gaudium et Spes podcast. It's me, Suzanne, and I'm here along with Chez in the studio this week. Um, we've uh, had a great um, podcast last time, so if you hadn't had a chance, please tune in to that, where we had Father Roy Marion, um, who is currently at Our Lady of Victory Parish in Crestview, but he served in many parishes um, along our diocese and has a lot of really wonderful stories to tell, and um, it was just really great having him on the show, wasn't it, Chez? Yes, it was a very fun conversation. It was a little tiny glimpse into the world and mind of Father Roy Marion, which the first word that comes to mind is eccentric which might sound a little derogatory, but once you meet Father Roy, it's a good eccentric. Um, I completely agree. Very fun conversation with him, which is great. And uh, and yeah, as, as speaking of our priests, our many wonderful priests, Father Roy being one of them, if you see your priests this coming weekend at, at Mass and they're all bright-eyed and bushy-tailed and look well-rested, uh, they're on retreat at the time of this recording. By the time you listen to this, they'll be off retreat. So anyhow, we are praying for them and hope they're having a great time. With that, what's going on with us? We've got to do our first line. It's the Gaudi Mitzvah's podcast. And uh, if you don't remember, As I have not fully, totally uh, written it to memory yet, read that for you guys here. The joys and the hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the men of this age, especially those who are poor or in any way afflicted. These are the joys and hopes, the griefs and anxieties of the followers of Christ. So we're real, real far into Easter season now, Suzanne. So yes. tell me joys and hopes, griefs and anxieties during this time of year. Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, a, a little bit of grief and anxiety with just things that are going on in our world these days. Mm. You know, the the shootings that have happened, um, a lot of the political unrest that is going on that seems to just permeate into our newscasts and sometimes our daily lives and stuff like that. So I just want to, you know, say our thoughts and prayers are with all of the people who have been in any way afflicted by the um, recent events that have happened and the things that are currently ongoing. And um, I don't know, I just, I think about that and uh, I know we all do and I know we all prayerfully and intentionally think of them during times like this. And I don't want to dwell on it too much, but I I think it's worth mentioning, you know, that sort of a thing. It's heavy on our hearts as we, you know, my my parents used to let me watch the evening news Mm -hmm. pretty consistently with them. Channel, yeah, ABC, Philadelphia affiliate up in Pennsylvania. And some of it was like shocking and, and man, my my wife and I talk about this all the time. Like, do we even let, do we like let our children watch Mm-hmm. The national news, local news, and like hear about some of the things that are going on, which I don't, I don't know how they would digest it as little people and for you know first graders, kindergarten, you know, pre Kers, and stuff like that. So now I hear you. It weighs. I think it's just all in the back of our minds, kind of at all times. The 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 difficulties of the news cycle. So I take it on board. It is. It is. But there's so much to be hopeful for too. You know, we are in the Easter season. I mean, Jesus is alive and around us each and every day, and it's just so wonderful to know that. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Well, uh, in my neck of the woods, first of all, again, keep saying it, as Bishop tells us to, happy Easter. It is It is the season of the resurrection, and we and we dwell on that. Um, I can't get by. I, we're, in, we're here recording. I just had this whirlwind 
weekend of, well, first of all, Peter Pan at St. John's, yes. my wife and kids attended. So over here in Pensacola, great production. Well done, St. John's folks. Uh, we wrapped up our CYSL soccer season. And uh, just like always, our best game like where we showed the most development and like was our last game and then the season was over and it's like Grr! so just a, a slight grief but also a joy in watching the progress there nice. but then uh i i saw with my three chill three older children the super mario brothers movie in the mm. theaters yesterday people it's so fun yeah. it was very 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 fun okay. for a person of my generation also derek behind the camera our producer uh who grew up playing original NES, Super Nintendo, all these Mario Kart 64 and Nintendo 64. It was a total blast in the past. Hilarious. My four-year-old daughter, who knows nothing about those things, she loved it. Um, we had a great time. So if you're looking for a little pick-me-up and you haven't been one of the, I don't know, a lot of people seen this movie, go. And if you've seen it once, it's probably good, worth watching again. So hooray. Yay. Things are good. <laughs> good. What do we got going on? Other good things. It is another Bishop Teaching episode. We are going into part two of the document, Lumen Gentium, on the Constitution of What Our Catholic Church Is. So we will see you on the flip side as always. In this episode, we pick up where we left off with Lumen Gentium. This is part two of that great document, that dogmatic constitution on the church. I want to talk about just kind of walk us through the last couple of chapters in that and then just put a conclusion to this awesome document. As I said last time, and hopefully you know by now, Lumen Gentium comes, like all of the titles, from the first line, which is this, Christ is the light of the nations. Christ is the Lumen Gentium, the light of the nations. That's where that comes from. And it's about the church, and the church proclaims that light and no other light. There is no other light, according to our faith and, and John. Um, there, this, this is the light of the world that has come. And uh, the church exists to proclaim that light to the nations. The church is the sacrament, thus, of salvation. It is absolutely necessary, and it is the means of our salvation in Christ. Christ is our Savior, not the church. But the church is what Christ has chosen to mediate that, to announce that, to promulgate that salvation in the world. Thus, the church is the sacrament of salvation. So in the first episode, I talked about the introduction as well as the first couple of chapters. The people of God called to holiness and salvation. And then the third chapter was about the hierarchy, particularly the bishops and then the priests and the deacons. Remember, Vatican I ended rather abruptly because of war, and they had intended, after treating the, the office of the papacy, to talk about the bishops next and the priests and deacons, and never got that chance because the council ended so abruptly. So Vatican II picked that up in this document, Lumen Gentium. So now we pick up with chapter 4. Chapter 4 is on the laity. Let me read you just from one of the paragraphs of Lumen Gentium, paragraph 30. Having set forth the functions of the hierarchy, the sacred council gladly turns its attention to the state of those faithful called the laity. Everything that has been said above concerning the people of God is intended for the laity, religious and clergy alike. But there are certain things which pertain in a special way to the laity, both men and women, by reason of their condition and mission. This is... That's a very interesting way to put it. I think before that, you know, the focus was on the hierarchy, on religious priests, brothers, bishops, the Pope, 
you know, I'd say that you know a great deal of the focus in the, on the ch- in the church was on those the laity. I'm sorry, the religious and clergy. But here they say that now there are special aspects of the laity which need our attention. We need to talk about, and uh, so it's kind of a shift, I guess. Um, and you know, the the council goes on to say uh, the laity, that is, uh, those who are not uh, religious or cl- or clergy ordained are the ones who, well, the majority of the, of the world, and they're, they're in schools and families and the marketplaces and work and all of that. And so naturally, if we're talking about bringing Christ's light to the nations, it is up to all of us, especially the laity, to do this in very ordinary, everyday occurrences and situations. And so it talks about that. That's where that comes from. We, we look to them. We need them to to proclaim the light of the nations to all the world it is their special vocation to bring the gospel then to their families to their workplaces to schools etc it says this as well in chapter 31 the laity by their very vocation seek the kingdom of god by engaging in temporal affairs and by ordering them according to the plan of god they live in the world that is, in each and in all of the secular professions and occupations. They live in the ordinary circumstances of family and social life, from which the very web of their existence is woven. They are called there by God, that by exercising their proper function and led by the Spirit of the Gospel, they may work for the sanctification of the world from within, as a leaven, in this way, they, make, they may make Christ known to others, especially by the testimony of a life resplendent in faith, hope, and charity. I like this because this is a huge step from kind of what we, the way we normally talk about the laity, or at least used to. You know, we made, I believe, um, a mistake we, we, we aimed too low after the council. You know, we said, Oh, great. So the laity are empowered and now they can read at mass. They can be ushers. They can take up the collection. They can serve as extraordinary ministers of communion. And they certainly can. But it's almost as though we stopped there for a long time and we were excited about that. And kind of that's what the laity do. They assist at mass and around the parish, you know, with the with things that priests and religious can't do. But that's not at all what this document says. This document talks about exercising their proper function for the sanctification of the world from within, so that by their very lives, by their actions, by their words, they are like, and here this is used, leaven, like yeast, from within the world, in workplaces, in the homes, in schools, in the marketplaces and wherever they are, to to bring that light of the nation, light of the nations to the world, and to help to bring about the sanctification that comes from Jesus Christ. What a great thing! I think that's it's really it's really a lot different from hey now they can be servers or, or lectors at church. So it's nice that we're recapturing that. I believe, and and also this goes hand in hand. I believe this part of Lumen Gentium goes hand in hand with another document. I'll try to say it, it's a bit of a tongue twister, but apostolicum actuositatem, which is on the apostolic activity of the laity. That's another letter, another decree within in Vatican II. But there they reminded people, all of us, of the great dignity of all of God's children, especially those who are 
what we call the laity in the church. We are all called to holiness and all called to evangelize. Now, today, this doesn't sound very groundbreaking to us. We say, of course we are. But again, we have to remember 60 years ago or before the council, a great deal of focus was on the clergy and religious. They were the holy ones. They were the ones set apart from all of us to, um, to kind of show us what holiness looks like. But the Vatican II reminded us again that really all of us, every one of us, by nature of our baptism, by virtue of our baptism, really by our virtue of being human beings, children of God are called to be holy and are called to evangelize again. It's, it's a lot different from just saying, hey, now you can do these few things. But this is what we expect of you. We expect all of God's people now to live into their baptism, to, to embrace the gospel, and to work for the sanctification, the salvation of the world. In paragraph 33, I like this line, it just says, The lay apostolate is a participation in the salvific mission of the church itself. Again, the lay apostolate is a participation in the salvific mission of the church itself. Again, doesn't sound so groundbreaking to us, but it was then, I believe, because it's now we're saying we are partners. We're all doing this together to um, participate in the salvific mission of the church itself. Everyone, by virtue of their baptism, is called to make Christ present through their words and actions. Okay, great. And, of course, it does talk about this. It's not just you know, um, the way we carry ourselves and, and our words, but also our actions in the world to work for justice and peace in the world, to help alleviate pain and suffering. This is something that all of us are called to, but in a special way, the laity, by their nature, by the, their occupation many times, can devote more of their time to doing these good works, the corporal and spiritual works of the church. That was chapter four. Chapter 5 is the universal call to holiness, kind of a little bit more of what I was just talking about, that all of us, bishops, priests, deacons, religious, married persons, single persons, young, old, etc., are invited into communion with the Lord. It should be our first goal to accept that invitation and to attend to it in prayer and activity, to work on that communion that God wants to have with all of us. And we find this in the church. The church is, is, exists to make this known and make this happen through the sacraments, through liturgy, through prayer, through the proclamation of the gospel to call us all to communion with God, that universal call to holiness. That's chapter five. That's a quick summary of chapter five. Chapter six is on religious. And by religious, we mean those called to the consecrated life. We think of sisters and nuns and brothers and monks and those who are in consecrated communities, even um, living what they what we call the evangelical councils of poverty, celibacy, and obedience. And the document goes on to say that through these vows, these evangelical councils, the religious, those who have professed these vows, are called to be fully and totally dedicated to God. And by that, they are a sign of the kingdom of heaven, actually. Because as Jesus said, in heaven there is no marrying and all of that. It is it is total dedication to God. So those who have voluntarily given that up 
and embrace celibacy and poverty and obedience are a sign of the kingdom of heaven, what is to come for all of us. And their vows should lead them to a life dedicated to not only to God, but to others, to charity, loving God and loving their neighbor in all things. And here's what it says. Here's what the, the document says about religious and those in consecrated life. Therefore, this sacred synod encourages and praises the men and women, brothers and sisters, who in monasteries or in schools or hospitals or in the missions adorn the bride of Christ by their unswervering and humble faithfulness in their chosen consecration and render generous services of all kinds to mankind. Let each of the faithful called to the profession of the evangelical counsels, therefore, carefully see to it that he persevere and ever grow in that vocation God has given him. Let him do this for the increased holiness of the church, for the greater glory of the one and undivided Trinity, which in and through Christ is the fount and source of all holiness." There we go. Again, it puts everything in the context of the church. Religious men and women and those who profess the evangelical councils are not doing this for their own sake, but it's for the sake of Christ being glorified, and it's the sake of the church being sanctified, the bride of Christ um, becoming who she is called to be, holy. Chapter 7 the eschatological nature of the pilgrim church and its union with the church in heaven. Wow, that's a lot. Eschatological has to do with the end times, the second coming, the union of heaven and earth, as we read in the Bible, especially in Revelation. But So the whole title is this, The Eschatological Nature of the Pilgrim Church and its union with the church in heaven. So now having talked about the church here on earth, the people of God, the laity, the bishops, the priests, the religious, now this chapter, chapter 7, turns toward stepping back and, and, and talking about the church now in relation to heaven, to our ultimate goal. Here's what it says in paragraph 48. The church, to which we are all called in Christ Jesus, and in which we acquire sanctity through the grace of God, will attain its perfection only in the glory of heaven, when there will come the time of the restoration of all things. At that time, the human race, as well as the entire world, which is intimately related to man and attains to its ends through him, will be perfectly reestablished in Christ." You see how this document really is not just talking about one aspect of the church, maybe the sacraments or the hierarchy, but really trying to just pro proclaim and promote and teach the whole truth about the church, who we are as individuals, why we were called to birth, if you will, by Christ Jesus, the spouse of the church, and the ends of the church, which is the glory of God and the sanctification of every member of the church, indeed every member of the human race. This is our goal and where we are heading. It talks about how the church on earth, called the church militant or the church fighting, is joined with those in purgatory, the church suffering, as well as our brothers and sisters already enjoying the beatific vision in heaven, the church triumphant. So the church, church militant, church suffering, church triumphant is one church. We are all connected. We have a great love and solicitude for the deceased, 
both for those who are in purgatory, we pray for them and offer our sacrifices and good works for them. We pray with gladness and enjoy with our brothers and sisters who are already with God face to face in heaven, and we humbly ask for their prayers as well. So it all we're all united, and it all comes together in the liturgy, especially in the Eucharist, when heaven and earth is wedded in a very mysterious way in the um, in the celebration of the sacred mass. That is chapter seven. I'm hoping, you know, I, I always say this. I hope this just kind of gives you a taste of of these of this great document, and I hope maybe this will pique your interest enough so you'll say, "Huh, I'm going to read all of chapter seven. I'm going to read the whole document because it really, really is good." Chapter eight is dedicated entirely to the Blessed Virgin Mary. If you remember in the last episode, or maybe one before that, I mentioned I, I talked about how some of the council fathers wanted to to make to have a whole document on Mary. In past councils, say Ephesus, Nicaea, and others, they treated the Blessed Virgin Mary um, in a special way, and there were new decrees or titles that were promulgated. At Ephesus, it was the mother of God, definitively. Since, Jesus, since Mary is the mother of Jesus, who is human and also God, she is the mother of Jesus, the human, and she is the mother of God. So that, that's where the title really comes from and was handed down, you know, and was, was finally promulgated. That happened as well in other councils, but not in Vatican II. They didn't, they didn't promulgate a new title or anything like that, but they did dedicate this chapter and some more chapters and other documents to the Blessed Virgin Mary. It puts Mary in context as not only the mother of God, but the mother of the church. Mary is what the document and the church calls a type of disciples. Type meaning she is the perfect model, the example of what all of us should be, all disciples. Because, you know, like, well, the perfect disciple, she heard the call through the angel to be the mother of God. She believed and she said yes and she followed to the end very faithfully. Therefore, she is the perfect model for all of us in the church who want to do the same thing. We want to respond to the call of Christ. We want to say yes with our lives. We want to work for the sanctification of the world with Christ. And we want to be with the Lord forever in heaven. So while this doesn't give a complete doctrine on Mary, you know, complete teaching, it is a beautiful exposition on her nature and her role in what we call the economy of salvation in in, in the whole story of salvation, it talks about how Mary plays not just a part, but a major part in that, of course, by being the mother of God and cooperating with the will of God in all things. I want to read to you the, uh, one of the paragraphs from the document on Mary, and that is um, paragraph number 56. Embracing God's salvific will with a full heart and impeded by no sin, Mary devoted herself totally as a handmaid of the Lord to the person and work of her Son, under him and with him, by the grace of Almighty God, serving the mystery of redemption. Rightly, therefore, the Holy Fathers see her as used by God not merely in a passive way, but as freely cooperating in the work of human salvation through faith and obedience. For as St. Irenaeus says, she being obedient, became the cause of salvation for herself 
and for the whole human race. Hence, not a few of the early fathers gladly assert in their preaching, the knot of Eve's disobedience was untied by Mary's obedience. What the Virgin Eve bound through her her unbelief, the Virgin Mary loosened by her faith. Comparing Mary with Eve, they call her the mother of the living. And still more often they say, death through Eve, life through Mary. And this document, this part of the document, also addresses those who question whether we in the Catholic Church put too much emphasis on the Blessed Virgin Mary, or those who say that by honoring her, we obscure Jesus' unique role as Savior. And so addressing that, just one more paragraph here. There is but one mediator, as we know from the words of the Apostle, for there is one God and one mediator of God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a redemption for all. The maternal duty of Mary towards men in no wise obscures or diminishes this unique mediation of Christ, but rather shows his power. For all the salvific influence of the Blessed Virgin on men originates not from some inner necessity, but from the divine pleasure. It flows forth from the superabundance of the merits of Christ, rests on his mediation, depends entirely on it, and draws all its power from it. In no way does it impede, but rather does it foster the immediate union of the faithful with Christ. So, instead of obscuring that or taking away from Mary's, uh, from Christ's unique role as Savior of the world, it's, it, we, of course, believe that Mary cooperates perfectly with Christ and thus is the perfect model for all of us. We should do the same thing. And she is even more than the perfect model. She intercedes for us and guides us to her Son, even now from her place in heaven. So the Council exhorts and admonishes all the faithful to honor Mary and to learn from her so that we may be united to her Son forever. Okay, some conclusions then on this great document. The Council set out to clarify the nature and role of the Church. The Church is the mystical body of Christ, the people of God on pilgrimage in the world, the only means of salvation in Christ. The Catholic Church is the fullest expression of the Church. The one Church in Christ, and this is a line they used, subsists in the Catholic Church. I like that. That and that's that was a very interesting line. It says that um, the Church of Christ, the one Church of Christ, subsists in the Catholic Church. Some wanted it to say is only found in the Catholic Church, or it is the Catholic Church. But we of course know that the one Church of God is is mystical and everything. But but the way we know it, the fullest expression of the of the Church is. In the Catholic Church. It subsists in the Catholic Church. But it's quick to say this. There are many elements of sanctification and truth to be found outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church. 
It's a very interesting line to say that, that there are some elements of truth and salvation can be found outside the church. If you remember in a previous episode, I talked about this. Some people erroneously held up that slogan, no salvation outside the church. In other words, if you weren't Catholic, you couldn't be saved. This is not the teaching of the church. We know that salvation comes to the world through the Catholic church. And for those of us who are catechized and brought up in the church, we have an obligation to seek and and continue to celebrate our salvation in the Catholic Church. But that doesn't mean that those outside the visible confines of the Catholic Church cannot be saved, cannot be forgiven, cannot be sanctified. If they are, it is through the work and the, the mission, the activity of the Catholic Church. This document was um, took a bold step toward interreligious and ecumenical dialogue by mentioning the Jews, Muslims, and those of other Christian denominations. I think people were, they wanted that to be addressed. You know, we wanted to know where do we stand in relation to the Jews and the Muslims and, and our Protestant brothers and sisters? Where do they stand with us? So that's, that's also treated there. Still, we cannot deny that the Catholic Church is revealed as the way through the sacraments, liturgy, and apostolic succession to Christ and thus to salvation. Thus, Lumen Gentium is a remarkable and foundational document or teaching, and much of it is delineated in the Catechism of the Catholic Church, especially in the section on the Catholic Church in Part 1. If you remember from the, the, initial, pod, the initial episode on um, the Vatican II, I talked about that great book that I liked from George Weigel, um, To Sanctify the World. And in there, he talked about this, that one of the things that Pope St. John Paul II did in his papacy was he wanted to, to kind of, to make the documents of Vatican II, the teachings of the document of, of Vatican II, he wanted to codify them and, and make them into law and the catechism. And so he promoted this catechism of the Catholic Church. So, they take a lot of, of uh, Lumen Gentium, a lot of the lines, a lot of the quotes, and put it right directly into the Catechism. So if you read part one, you'll read a lot of Lumen Gentium. Jesus Christ is the Lumen Gentium, the light of the nations, and the Church exists to proclaim that truth. How do we respond to the dizzying questions and conundrums of our day, they asked, and the answer is found in this document. By allowing Christ to unite us, to gather us into his spouse, his church, the mystical body of Christ, for our sanctification and the sanctification of the whole world. Welcome back. Wow, what a great teaching episode by um, Bishop Walk again. Lumen Gentium Part 2, Christ is the Light of the Nations. Ches, what were your initial thoughts? A lot, a lot of initial <laughs> thoughts, but the first one that stuck out to me right before um, uh, this podcast was was done, um, we are blessed in our household to have a first-class relic um, gifted to us by one of our, my wife and I, our closest friends from college, went to Rome and got a, a, a relic of a saint, you, some of you might have heard of, St. Gemma Galgani. Mm. Her feast day is April 11th. Um, he didn't know it at the time, but she, her feast day is the same day that my wife and I got engaged, April 11th, and oh. uh, so it was just kind of like a yeah. nice little serendipitous gift. But So we have this relic in a special wooden box at our house, and on April 11th, we take it out, we venerate and do prayers with our children. Mm-hmm. And this is very, you know, what Bishop was talking about, our church and in its in its earthly but also heavenly reality is still just one thing 
you know, obviously we talk about our saints all the time and stuff like that. But this is a moment we did this together for this year. It was like, Oh my gosh, like she, like we're on the same team still, even though she is like passed beyond the veil of this world and she's in heaven. Like she is so alive and with and like just, just the fact that he didn't even know, you know, that relevance was the day we got engaged, but he gives us this relic of this, this saint who it just shows like God really has us working together, both the earthly church and the church on earth and the church in heaven, the church suffering in purgatory. So just a very beautiful moment where it's like, yeah, that's true. Absolutely. It bears out in real life. So I love that part of it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, I think it just um, goes along with the whole discussion on the laity and how we as um, people of the church are responsible for spreading the word um, at our in our homes, at our schools, in our workplaces, our community, that sort of a thing. And so, um, you know, when Bishop was talking about this, it immediately came to mind the Lay Formation Institute, which I know you're very, very heavily involved in. You, along with uh, Sister Margaret and right. uh, Father Chris Winklejohn, right. um, from what I understand, it was established by the diocese here in 2016 mm-hmm. um, with the mission to provide quality, spiritual, intellectual, and human formation to lay people. And uh, you're... Did you read the brochure? I did. I did. <laughs> um, but, you know, hey, uh, it's always good to learn a little bit more. So, yeah. but... Um, so yeah, tell us about. I know you just finished, um, you know, uh, yeah. your third cohort, and you're getting ready to start the fourth one here. That's right. So, um, for those uh, that are listening and watching today that don't know much about it, uh, yeah, let's uh, keep us informed. Well, absolutely. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you asked. What you know, as Bishop was was as we were here for the recording, he was talking about. He had this key line. You know, after Vatican II, he feels like we maybe missed the boat a little bit on really empowering the lady to do what the documents of the Second Vatican Council, mm-hmm. particularly Lumen Gentium, say, which is, he was like, well, we, we, it seems like we sold ourselves short and we kind of stopped at, oh, if you guys want to read at Mass, you can read at Mass now. Mm-hmm. You can be a lector, which is great. You, if you want to be a Eucharist, it's extraordinary minister of Holy Communion, sure thing. Kind of liturgical roles for lay people that used to be the exclusive t- territory of, of clerics, but right. now it's like, okay... And these are all good things, but mm-hmm. the documents don't say, hey, how we can be lay people that follow Christ is to go and be lectors at Mass, and you can, but the wider world is the mission field. Absolutely. And um, this is kind of what Father Chris, uh, Sister Margaret, and I try and, and focus on with the rest of the presenting team and all the f- folks that come alongside and partner with us for this diocesan initiative is to really reframe our minds as lay people to see what the heck is our mission field and mm-hmm. how does the church task us with, I mean, every priest's job is really hard. Every every cleric's job is really hard. But the church literally says the proper mission field of the lady is everything not in the parish boundaries. Mm-hmm. So the whole world. Right. <laughs> and it's just very, very daunting. Um, and it's a different kind of set. What we try and do in our, in our to, to get more specific, in our mm-hmm. two-year formation process is really one year on our lay identity. So again, you, you know this by being a Catholic especially is like there's there's – Similarities, but also differences between me and the clergy. Mm-hmm. Between, namely, like we have families and they are are celibates for the kingdom. But beyond that, like there's there's clear like juridical legal stuff that goes on. Like this is what clerics do in the church. This is what the lady has rights to do in mm-hmm. the church and stuff like that. The history of the the relation between lady and clergy, which has sometimes been a little fraught. <laughs> sometimes <laughs> been a little fraught. And some of our identity comes from that. But then also going more deeply in the theological sense of well, how does the church see 
the world being ordered? What about mm-hmm. economics and labor? What is we're trying to ask that question basically? What if you're a Catholic and you're you own a contracting business? Mm-hmm. You know, like you you build people's homes and stuff. How do you act differently as a Catholic informed by their faith as a contractor than other people? Maybe are good people and stuff like that, but maybe their primary motivation is a profit, which we totally understand. Right. But as Catholics, as lay Catholics, especially our primary motivation should be to sanctify the world and and do our business well for the good mm-hmm. for the common good and that's a different way of just again one op, one idea there being a contractor in the world um or especially for all of us who are lay folks a lot of us are in the married state how does being a catholic spouse make my family different than i don't know the normal way of being a family or like the culturally mm-hmm. kind of accepted way of being a family how are we evangelizing through our daily lives mm-hmm. as catholics so we just try and take two years two years to ask these questions and ask the church's documents like what do you have to say to us we ask one another um we have a, a also like a supplemental um, theological formation through this time it'll be franciscan university of steubenville's online courses so mm-hmm. we're just trying to go deeper man we're just trying to get a bigger sense of, yeah. of what god has called us to as lay people because it is a specific different calling than the life of the clergy and the life of also the religious that are in our church. So Yeah, definitely. I think it's um, amazing because I know we've talked about this before too, but as adults, you know, we have to continue our um, faith education. And so this is just a great way to be able to do that. Um, So you're taking applications right now? Taking applications. It's a a commitment, guys. It's two years. Mm -hmm. Um, So it will start in August of 2023, run until April-ish of uh, of 2025. Um, Live workshops on Saturdays, also online courses I mentioned through Franciscan University of Civil Retreats, Election days um, gives a little bit of financial commitment to just kind of pay for the. We don't make any money, we promise. Right. Um, uh, but yeah, it's just a real great opportunity if you want to grow in community with other people from across the diocese who are interested in similar things. And you're just like, you know, especially if you haven't really done any kind of adult formation. Mm-hmm you know, in a while, or maybe it's been sporadic or something like that. This is, you know, it's not a graduate degree, but it's, you'll get a healthy dose of Catholicism if you do this for sure. And you'll definitely have a different sense of your place in the world and the, and the calling the crisis place in your life. Um, so yeah, we'd love to have you join us. PTdiocese.org slash lay formation Institute. You'll find all the things there you want to know about it, the brochure, the cost, the logistics, um, and also the application form, which again, June 1st is our cutoff. Uh, so we know what we're going into in August. So We'd love to have you. Yeah. Great. Cool. Um, like I said, we have another episode coming up, don't we? We do. We, a different episode, guys. I, I won't put too many previews on this, but this is our first episode as a crossover between us and another podcast. You may have seen a few years ago, Bishop Bill appeared on a different podcast, not ours. Shame on him. No, just kidding. That's totally fine. Um, it was called Generation Vatican II, where he did uh, a guest episode appearances, uh, talking about his life as a bishop and also the season of Advent on Generation Vatican II. We decided we'd have Alex Clark, who hosts and runs Generation Vatican II, come on our turf, and he uh, kind of talks about his faith journey um, as a Catholic, who was kind of disaffiliated, and then into this inspiration, why start a podcast as a layperson, mm. which we talk about a lot of as well, uh, dedicated to the Second Vatican Council. So if you're enjoying these series of teaching episodes, this will be another kind of a, a cherry on top of that cake. So hopefully see you there, and we hope you guys have a great rest of your Easter season. Thank you for tuning in today to the Gaudium et Spes podcast. If you would like to know more about our podcast, please visit gaudiumetspes.net or go to ptdiocese.org and click the button that says podcast. 
If you listen to the audio version from an app such as iTunes, Stitcher, or Spotify, be sure and rate, review, and comment. If you watched us on YouTube, make sure you like and subscribe or leave us a comment there as well. Thank you for joining us.